everybody. Welcome back to Worked Up, Ackerman's Employment Law Podcast. Uh, I'm here again with a good friend of the podcast, uh, Eric Posner, law professor at the University of Chicago. Thanks for being on again. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be here. The goal for this podcast, I mean, when I'm thinking of subjects or topics to cover, I always think about things that start to come across my desk with, with, with more frequency. And it seems to me that antitrust law, which is a subject about which I knew very little coming into this podcast, other than what you see in the news, started to kind of creep into my inbox and creep onto my desk in the context of employment law. And so where it's good to have a friend like Eric you can call with questions about things like this, I thought it might make sense to have him come on and explain really what I see as an increasingly important overlay between antitrust law and employment law and what practitioners and companies can expect to see going forward. So let's take a step back. For people like me, or at least like me before I started preparing for this podcast, um, who don't know that much about uh, antitrust law, uh, give everybody first a very, very high-level background about what this body of law is, and then we'll break down the specific type of claims that can be asserted in the employment law context. But start, start broad. Sure. Antitrust 101, so to speak. 101. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, the premise of antitrust law as it, you know, currently works is that free markets are good. Uh, competition results in efficiency and productivity, and it's something that the law should uh, encourage and protect. Um, antitrust law exists because um, from time to time, firms will... Uh, try to figure out ways to undermine the, the market um, and uh, either uh, obtain illegal monopolies or uh, collude with each other. And, you know, the basic problem from an economic perspective is that if, uh, if firms get monopolies or if they collude with each other, uh, they can charge prices above the competitive or efficient rate. Um, that harms consumers in two ways. The first is, of course, they're just paying more for the same stuff. And so if you're concerned about uh, inequality or equity, uh, there's just this fact that um, especially uh, lower-income people are injured by anti-competitive behavior. But, it's, uh, but uh, it's also a problem just from the standpoint of the size of the economy, economic efficiency, and productivity. If... Um, if uh, firms are able to charge above market prices uh, for their goods and services, um, you just have um, fewer people able to afford those goods and services and the lower amount of production. Um, the way that the firms actually are able to charge higher prices is that they reduce production. And that just means that they're you know, producing stuff in a less efficient way using more inputs. That's bad for the economy. That's bad for everybody, uh, not just mm -hmm. uh, poor people. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the basic, you know, that's the the basic um, concern of antitrust law. Now, I just like the examples you gave. I always thought of antitrust law in that context, right? That if companies collude with one another, and I'm, I know that's a loaded term, I'm using it more colloquially for this podcast, but to raise prices or anything that would hurt the consuming public, it could trigger some antitrust law that uh, lawyers hash out with the federal government. But there's a less, I guess, less frequently invoked body of antitrust law that 
relates to wages and payment of wages to employees that exists, as I understand it, completely separate from the impact that companies getting together might have on prices. So what's the historical construct for the body of antitrust law that relates to wages? Sure. So, you know, the, the, the modern antitrust legal regime goes back to the Sherman Act in the late 19th century. And uh, when the Sherman Act was passed, there, you know, the people who supported it didn't have the kind of modern, sophisticated economic understanding of antitrust law. They were basically just concerned about these big trusts, these big companies like Standard Oil, and you know, there's a sugar trust and a tobacco trust, and, and basically these were just enormous companies that monopolized, um, you know, whole sectors of the, of the economy. And people were concerned, you know, about the possibility that these firms would raise prices. Um, they were concerned about other things as well, that these firms might um, get involved in the political process and corrupt it. And they were also concerned about wages. Um, they were concerned that the firms would um, uh, exercise um, power over labor markets and be able to suppress wages below what people regarded as uh, the f a fair or competitive level at the time. And so um, at the beginning, these ideas of different markets and uh, the way that a, a firm could dominate different markets wasn't really clearly, um, uh, you know, people didn't think about them in a kind of a systematic way as, as clearly different, but they did understand that the antitrust laws were basically supposed to maintain competition in all, in all markets, not, not just the, pro the product market. And then so what happened is... Um, over the next century or more, uh, the litigation tended to focus um, only on product markets and not on labor markets, despite the fact that the antitrust laws originally understood would apply to both. And I think this is more um, just the way things worked out um, for a number of, of historical reasons. But, but just to be clear, you know, the U.S. government gets involved in enforcing antitrust law. There's private litigation, and it's almost all focused on what we tend to think of as the classic either monopolistic or collusive behavior. So big companies uh, taking over an industry like oil or tobacco or sugar and charging high prices. And it could be monopolies, you know, a single company dominating, let's say, the entire sugar uh, sector of the economy, or it could be a number of companies colluding. That means, you know, fixing prices, for example. Now, the reason why there wasn't as much focus on labor is most likely that um, right around this same time, uh, workers were organizing into unions. And initially, uh, the antitrust laws were used to attack uh, the unions. Uh, people, employers and, and, and businesses generally would argue that when workers get together, and say to an employer, you know, we're all going to quit unless you raise our wages, that's actually a kind of cartelization. That's a kind of price fixing or, or wage fixing. And the courts were initially sympathetic uh, to that view. Um, later, there were legal changes that um, got rid of it, but the unions developed this uh, uh, skepticism about antitrust law. They saw it as um, a, a weapon for their enemies, uh, the employers. And meanwhile, the unions themselves took over 
the um, you know the the role of aggregating labor par- power. So you know to the extent that employers were trying to suppress wages, either you know because again they control the labor market, that would be a monopsonist, or because uh, employers uh, joined together to uh, fix wages, the unions would guard the workers against that. I mean, so the, the unions saw themselves as the agents that protected workers from labor monopsony, the ability of employers to suppress wages. And I think there's there's actually a, a fair amount of historical evidence that that's what unions did um, until uh, the last, uh, you know, half century or so. Union density peaks in the 1950s, and then unions become this, uh, undergo a, a steady decline um, uh, from the 1950s to today. And mm-hmm. as they declined, they, um, you know, could no longer serve this role of aggregating, uh, labor power. And I think, um, that's why, um, well, both unions and, you know, basically plaintiff's lawyers have, have come to see that antitrust law could, could be a supplement or a replacement uh, for the bargaining power that uh, unions obtained uh, for workers. And I guess that 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 folds nicely into the actual claims that uh, started to be asserted in the labor context and what you think might be coming next. So just to define a couple of terms quickly up front so that everybody starts the analysis on the same page. Um, When I read about antitrust law, there's a concept of horizontal versus uh, vertical antitrust concerns. Can you explain very briefly what the difference between those two are to kind of set the table? Sure. So um, two firms have a horizontal relationship if they compete with each other. So imagine um, two car manufacturers, uh, let's say Ford and GM. They have a horizontal relationship to each other because they're both selling cars to the market. And if they were to agree to fix the wages, uh, the, sorry, the prices of, of the cars or engage in any kind of other collaborative behavior, a question w- would arise whether they're, engage- they're acting in an anti-competitive way. And antitrust law tends to be skeptical about horizontal cooperation. A vertical relationship is basically just think of it as a supply chain uh, relationship. So... GM has a vertical relationship with its dealers, um, or it has a, it also has a vertical relationship with its suppliers. And um, the antitrust law, especially in the last uh, 30 years or so, has been much less concerned about um, vertical relationships. And so uh, if GM were to merge with some of its suppliers or to buy up some of its dealers, um, or you know to set you know or to tell the dealers how to set prices within limits, that's fine. And the basic reason is that GM isn't uh, competing with its dealers or its suppliers. So it's okay for some degree of cooperation to occur up and down the the vertical uh, uh, supply chain. Got it. And the other key, and there are a ton of other terms that if I if I bungle during this podcast, you'll catch me on it and let me know. And if I'm forgetting, you'll, 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 you'll tell me. But the one that seems to come up most frequently is this concept of a product market versus a labor market and the extent to which either or both are heavily concentrated. So can you just explain the distinction for everybody of a product market and a labor market and what we mean when we talk about its level of concentration? Sure. So 
to return to GM and Ford, you know, the product market here is cars, basically. Of course, you can, you know, you can divide product markets. Maybe it's cars and light trucks, or maybe it's minivans. But, you know, the basic idea, it's the products that are being sold to consumers. And when the products are sufficiently similar to each other, we, we think of it as a market. And so we might think there's a different market for cars and motorcycles, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is basically when you're shopping for cars, you know, you're probably not going to look at a motorcycle. You'll just look at the different cars manufactured by different companies. So that's the, the product market. Uh, the labor market is just um, the market uh, for employers. And so here, what we look at is the type of occupation. Uh, so for example, there's a, there's a labor market for lawyers. And, and labor markets are, are typically um, geographically confined to what's often called a commuting zone. So in Chicago, for example, there's a labor market for lawyers. And so the employers are competing, uh, law firms mostly, and maybe some government agencies uh, are, and, and you know, some some uh, private corporations that need a lawyer or two on staff. Those all those companies are competing uh, for lawyers, and the way they compete for the lawyers is to offer higher wages. Uh, similarly, the way um, sellers on the product market side compete for consumers is to offer lower prices. So there's just this kind of mirror image. Um, now, concentration refers just to the to the extent to which a, a market is competitive, and basically, it's a, it's a very simple idea. The more um, competitors you have, uh, the less concentrated or the more competitive the market is. So, if we take the car industry again, in the old days, at the beginning, I think there were dozens of different car manufacturers, and when you have dozens or even hundreds of companies competing to sell products. We say that's a you know a pretty competitive market. On the other hand, today there are only a handful of car manufacturers, so the market is is much more concentrated. You know, you could imagine hypothetically, suppose there were just one car manufacturer, that would be a monopolist, um, the only company that makes cars, and that would be the most concentrated that a market could be. A market can cannot have obviously fewer than one one seller. An antitrust law tends to be well, is uh, concerned about concentrated markets, markets with either just one seller or maybe two or three. But as the number of sellers increases, um, you know, typically antitrust law uh, is less concerned about it. And then you can you make the same you can make the same point about labor markets. So some labor markets um, have lots of employers, and so they would be regarded as relatively competitive. If you take, for example, again. Um, the market for lawyers in Chicago, there are dozens or maybe hundreds of employers. And so all of those employers, you know, have to compete with each other to attract lawyers. That, we would call that a competitive market. Um, but you, you can find concentrated markets uh, all over the country and particularly in smaller towns and, and rural areas. So if you go to a small town, uh, let's say, you know, Joliet, Illinois, uh, in, or, or Peoria, Illinois, there, there are many fewer um, law firms. And if you have a small enough town, you may have only one or two different law firms competing for whoever lives in that town who has a, a license and a legal education. And in that case, we would say the labor market is, is fairly concentrated. 
And if, as we'll talk about, if those two law firms were to merge, it would become uh, even more concentrated and potentially draw the attention of uh, antitrust lawyers or regulators. Right, right, exactly. Um, and we should say also, as we get into the claims, these are all, as I've learned, highly litigable terms, right? So if, if uh, somebody is seeking to define, in the law firm example, uh, labor market uh, very narrowly, uh, they can say, well, it's only employment lawyers, and employment lawyers only qualified to do employment law. And if somebody is trying to argue in a litigation that the, the labor market is broader, you can say, no, 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 Matt's an employment lawyer, but he's also a litigator. And so the labor market really is litigation generally, and so on and so forth. Um, right, exactly. Is that right? Exactly. Like, you can, it's not always, as, yeah. uh, people don't always agree on that. That's a hotbed of litigation. Right. It's, it's a difficult problem. Um, and the way, you know, technically the way the law deals with it is you hire expert economists who who basically will try to figure out, um, they'll figure out the boundaries of the market by asking whether these positions are really, or these goods are, are, are really substitutes for each other. So, right. you know, if you take for the, you know, the car market, for example, how, how do we know that motorcycles aren't part of the car market? You might say, you know, some people, if the price of a car goes up, they'll just switch to a motorcycle. So we should just think of a, let's say, a market for vehicles. But the actual, in actual fact, most people don't, you know, switch between cars and uh, motorcycles. And so the test is, if um, a hypothetical monopolist, uh, you know, of, of cars, if they raised prices a little bit, would people immediately switch to motorcycles? And if the answer is no, then we say there's a market in cars. And we would do the same thing on the labor market side. So if um, we take employment lawyers. And imagine that wages went down a small amount, let's say 5%. Oh, God forbid. Would those employment lawyers you know, switch um, to, let's say, other law firms that were looking for lawyers to do complex uh, commercial litigation or uh, criminal defense or something like that? And if the answer is yes, they would, then the proper market definition is lawyers generally. If the answer is no, they wouldn't, then the proper market definition is employment lawyers. Got it. Okay, well, let's let's put it all into practice. So there are really three main types of antitrust claims that can be asserted. Uh, two under the Sherman Act, Sherman Act Section 1, Sherman Act Section 2, and one other, uh, one under the Clayton Act, Section 7, and we'll talk about state uh, analogs as well. Um, Sherman Act, Section 1, uh, relates to agreements among, or purported agreements amongst uh, entities that can have the effect of restraining uh, trade. Explain the nature of these types of claims generally, and then we can break down how they've been asserted in the employment context. Right. So Sherman Act Section 1 deals with um, agreements between uh, different uh, companies that have an anti-competitive effect. And, you know, the, the sort of the classic or paradigm case would be Ford and GM getting together and agreeing on prices. You know, we're, we're not going to charge below a certain price for our vehicles. Um, or they could agree not to sell more than a certain number of vehicles. Or they could divide the country into geographic regions. You know, Ford will sell in the east and GM will will sell in the west. Um, those are all what's called per se 
violations of the antitrust laws because people generally think there's no, you know, there's no good reason for those agreements. It's very unlikely that they would result in greater productivity or greater efficiency. They almost certainly seem to be ways just to raise prices and, and lower production or, or output. Right. Um, Is there any defense other than we didn't do it or it's not true? Or are there any circumstances uh, that would be okay? There, yeah. Basically, there's no defense. So when do these type of Section 1 claims arise in the labor market context? And what type of Section 1 claims do you see potentially coming uh, with more frequency down the road? Okay. So, um, you know, the the kind of... If any. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, already th- th- there was a famous, you know, about 10 years ago, there was a, a famous um, um, settlement between the, the Justice Department and a lot of the big uh, Silicon Valley tech companies. And the, 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 the Silicon Valley tech companies had entered into what are called no-poach agreements. And under these agreements, basically each company promised the other companies that they wouldn't you know, go after the software engineers of their competitors. Okay, so that's a horizontal agreement among competitors, although they weren't always all of them. Well, they were all competing. Sorry, they they were all competing for the same, more or less the same software engineers, and they were agreeing, you know, not to poach, which meant um, that the head of one company wouldn't call up um, a software engineer who works for another company and say, "Hey, you know, what are you making? Um, I'll offer you a higher salary if you come over, if you quit and you come over here." Okay, so that was a major event because I think before then people weren't aware that this kind of thing could happen. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there were cases before then, but not nearly as, as high profile. Um, there have been other cases where, for example, let's say two hospitals um, were accused, are accused of um, either agreeing on certain wages for registered nurses or agreed to exchange information about their salaries with the um, consequence that it was easier for the um, the hospitals to, uh, you know, avoid undercutting, uh, uh, sorry, avoid, you know, competition over wages. You know, if, if I know that the nurse who works for me can't make more than $70,000 a year at the competing hospital, then you know I won't offer her more than seventy thousand dollars a year to stay here, and so the natural kind of competition that might otherwise arise as each hospital tries to um, increase the number of nurses that they um, that they employ is, is stopped. Um, and a final example: just last fall, a lawsuit was brought against two big uh, chicken processing companies, and that uh, lawsuit accused them of sharing information about the wages of of the you know the the employees that they use to slaughter chickens basically and again the argument is that they're sharing this information so that they can avoid competing on wages and and that's a way of um, suppressing uh, competition in the labor markets. What about things like trade associations and trade groups where people get together at conferences and talk about goings on in, the, in various industries? Those are, you know, pretty common and out in the open, and not you know these conspiratorial um, backroom meetings. How do these antitrust concerns come into play in those scenarios? 
Right. So the, under the antitrust law, firms are allowed to engage in you know various types of cooperation that you know seem to you know be good for the economy. Um, and so trade associations are fine. Uh, for example, uh, you know you might use a trade association to set certain st- quality standards, or or you might. Um, you know, hold a conve- like a I don't know an automobile um, uh, you know convention where people come and look at the automobiles being manufactured by different companies, or companies just give information about what they're working on. And the idea is that kind of sharing of information um, can uh, promote uh, market efficiency and and make it easier, for example, for consumers to compare the products of different um, companies. But there's a line, you know, if, if, the, if the firms uh, meet at these conventions or in their trade associations and start talking about prices, uh, they can go to jail. So, so they have to be or careful. Or wages. So interesting, right. and interestingly, um, the Justice Department has given guidance to firms about the extent to which they can share wage information. Uh, the the government recognizes that you know sometimes it makes sense um, for for companies to share that information. It might you know sort of help them understand the labor market better. And so there's a kind of a tricky trade-off here. And, and what the Justice Department basically has said is, if you exchange wage information in a way that's you know very aggregated. Uh, I don't know, maybe your average wage or and, and, and then in the past, and it can be in the recent past, you know, that might be okay. But what you can't do is have a kind of a day-to-day thing where um, one company makes clear what it's paying its workers whenever the other company sort of calls them up and, and asks them. That's crossing the line because that can make uh, cooperation over wages uh, much easier. Let's say there's somebody who believes that they've been uh, the victim of one of these agreements which violate Section 1 and believes as a consequence that either him or herself or at scale, wages have suppressed, been suppressed. Uh, what type of claim does that person assert? What does he, he or she have to prove? Do you actually have to show that the result of that agreement was to suppress my wages? How do the claims get litigated? So uh, in in the Section One uh, case, yeah, just in Section One, about, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it depends on whether it's a per se claim or a rule of reason claim. So if it's if it's a per se claim, let's say, um, you know, a registered nurse says in my in my town there are two hospitals and they've they've suppressed wages. Um, the 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 bare fact that they uh, that they did that that they made an agreement. Is is sufficient basically to win the the Section One claim? It, you know, you don't have to show that they have market power. So even if there are a hundred hospitals in your town, the fact that only two of them entered into this agreement, you know, that's enough. Um, but you do ultimately have to prove damages of some sort. But uh, and and that could be very difficult. Um, I think in practice, though, courts are, are relatively you know open to any kind of reasonable damages measure. But it's it's not hard to win an antitrust case when you have per se illegal uh, behavior. Uh, it's just that it's hard to find cases like that because either the firms are very uh, careful to hide uh, their, you know, their collusion um, or um, uh, 
Well, really, it's because either the or it just didn't happen, you know, or it's 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 you know you think that you 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 think that the um, that the firms are colluding when when they they aren't really, or they're not colluding in a in a way that's really illegal. In the case of a, in a rule of reason case, it's hard to win um, because now you have to show that the firms actually had market power. And that can be difficult. You you have to show you have to define the market as we talked about earlier. That can be complicated, and you you know you have to kind of show that they either have a big uh, piece of the market, or that um, whatever they did caused your your wages to decline or the wages of employees generally. And right, it can be hard to you get just to leave as a remedy if they didn't have well, market power. Right. If they didn't have market, right. Exactly. If they don't have market power, then the court kind of assumes that they have to they have to pay you a you know a reasonable wage because if they didn't, you could leave. So you have to kind of overcome that that sort of skepticism, and and then just you know getting the data and having it analyzed that's complicated and expensive, and it may not work out in the end. It's it's possible, for example, that sometimes even when firms do have market power, they don't really suppress wages. Um, and, 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 you know, firms can uh, suppress your overall compensation without suppressing your wages. For example, they could um, reduce your benefits. They could um, make your working conditions worse. And that's a way of using your market power. But if they do that, it, it could be even more difficult for the um, employee to prove uh, that he or she has been harmed. Um, where else have you seen these no poach agreements come up and, and be litigated? And do you expect to see more litigation in that area in the in the near term? Right. So another important development was um, the litigation against uh, these big franchises which use no poaching agreement. So a lot of the the biggest, most familiar retail fast food franchises. Um, put a no poaching clauses in in their franchise contracts. And so basically what this meant is that um uh you know take McDonald's for example. So you could have two McDonald's outlets um in Chicago, let's say a couple miles from each other. And uh if um if suppose you have an employee at one of the outlets who is is being paid uh, whatever ten dollars an hour and and then goes to the other outlet and says you know I've all the, I've developed all this experience you want to pay me a little more the under the no poach clause the second outlet would would not be permitted to do that and these no poach clauses apparently have been in these franchise agreements for quite a long time um, some academics at Princeton wrote a paper a few years ago documenting that. Dozens of these large franchises use these no poaching clauses, and then some states, uh, state attorneys general, brought lawsuits against uh, the franchises, arguing that uh, these no poach clauses were anti-competitive and uh, and also harmful in other ways uh, to employees. And I believe by this point, most of the um, franchises have dropped the no poach clauses, and there's been follow-on uh, private litigation as well. Uh, now, these no-poach cases are, are a bit more complicated than the Silicon Valley case because um, the franchise outlets have, you know, a kind of relationship with each other and with the center, the, 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 the overall franchise organization. It's a little less clear how much market power they have over uh, workers. But 
it's a legitimate case, um, and uh, and you know the private litigation may may very well be uh, successful. Right, because if I save money to buy a, a McDonald's franchise, and we're using that obviously just as an example, and I, I train someone up to become my assistant uh, manager, and then they can leave and go two miles away uh, to another franchise, I, I can see why, at least intellectually, franchises thought of using that kind of uh, provision. It kind of makes makes sense, in, at least in, in that respect. What, what defenses are there, if any, or, or what circumstances would permit some type of no poach agreement? Because I imagine as it started coming out in the franchise context, they're, they're probably used more frequently um, than people may think. Are they ever right. okay? And, right. Well, you know, this, this is a tough question. Um, when, uh, when, a, when a no poach clause is purely horizontal, it's it's very likely illegal. The franchise franchise cases are complicated because there's a vertical element to them. You know, you have the the franchise organization has a kind of a vertical relationship with the franchisees. It, the franchise organization licenses, you know, the its intellectual property and trains and and does that sort of thing. And and so there is a dispute going on in these cases about which uh you know which analysis to use per se a rule of reason or or something else now now let, let me try to answer your question directly because it, it's a it's it's a difficult question a- antitrust law works through these kind of broad presumptions so you could say you know i really need a no poach clause in order to protect my investment in my employee right if if i put a lot of money training my em- employee and in the meantime I'm losing value because the employee is, you know, not very good, you know, he or she's not trained yet. And then I'm sort of expecting to uh, obtain the return on my investment later on when I'm able to, when the employee is very productive and I'm able to charge, you know, pay the employee a relatively low wage, right? That, that's the image that employers have often have in their mind. And, 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 and you know, this comes up a lot with uh, covenants not to compete as yeah, well. Yeah, you and I talked about that on the last podcast. Exactly. Yeah, familiar. right. Very similar idea. Now, uh, but you so antitrust law, the, the way it works is that if there's a horizontal agreement, you're generally not allowed to make that argument. So, you know, otherwise, you know, two firms that engage in price fixing, you know, they could come up with with uh, with a theory about why price fixing is okay. For example, you know, we're we're doing all of this R&D and it's really expensive. And if I'm going to have to compete with, you know, Ford later on, um, I'll lose my investment in R&D. And courts generally reject that. They say, yeah, theoretically that's possible, but most of the time that's not really good an ex- really a really good excuse. And what you're really just trying to do is overcharge people. And I and I think that's probably the right analysis to use for training investment in in employees. And there are a couple reasons for this. The the first is that there is a lot of friction, natural friction already in labor markets. Generally speaking, workers don't like to leave uh, their their current employer, and uh, they don't because it's disruptive. You know, it messes up their commute. Uh, it, it, you know, they, they've made friends with their co-employees. Um, they, they've, they've uh, started work with this particular employer in the first place because the employer has certain attractive characteristics. 
So there probably is enough friction already to protect uh, the employer's uh, investment in training uh, the employee. And in addition, there are ways to protect your investment that are not quite as uh, anti-competitive. So, for example, you could backload some of the employee's uh, compensation, for example, um, so that you know the employee's paid a little less at the beginning during the training period and then gets a bonus at the end of the year or at the end of two years. Um, and that should uh, discourage the employee from leaving. At the same time, though, since you haven't actually barred the employee from going to work for a competitor, there remains, uh, you know, some uh, pressure on you not to not to suppress wages. So this is, you know, there's similar types of arguments on the product market side. Um, there's a great enough concern that both sellers on the product market side and employers on the labor market side can exercise market power in a way that's harmful to the economy, that um, courts are reluctant to allow them to come up like any old excuse for the most blatant forms of, uh, of collusion. On the other hand, when you have these more complicated situations, the kind of rule of reason situation where firms engage in joint ventures on the product market side or engage in vertical uh, types of um, arrangements on the product market side, then the courts are willing to listen to um, the defendant's uh, efficiency justifications and, and actually frequently uh, accept them. That's one of the reasons why those cases are so hard to win. Next set of claims is the Sherman Act Section 2, probably less common in the in the labor arena that doesn't require uh, an agreement between two companies. It's where a single actor uh, is so large that it can be deemed to have engaged in anti-competitive uh, conduct. So you know, explain briefly the nature of uh, Section 2 claims, and then we'll turn last to the Clayton Act, which relates to mergers and acquisitions. Right. So uh, a Section 2 claim is usually against a monopolist or mm. a company that's about to become a monopolist. So you could think of Microsoft... The Microsoft was sued by the government, uh, and at at the time, micro, and I suppose it still does. Microsoft had a a, mon, a monopoly over operating systems for you know IBM clones for non non Apple uh, computers. Um, uh, in the old days, you know there were monopolists who controlled the aluminum market, or the as I mentioned before, the oil market or the tobacco market. But this is basically a firm with a very large fraction of a market. It could be 100% and that would be a true monopolist. Often it's you know more like 70% or 80%. Um, a right, lot and of again, companies, uh, sorry to interrupt, you can, you can litigate yeah. what the market is, whether it's computers right. or computer right. equipment, but in right. however the market is deemed, uh, you have this right. one huge actor in it. Yeah, you have this huge actor. And a lot of, uh, nowadays, a lot of companies get monopolies legitimately through you know development of patents, um, or Microsoft, you know, with its trade secrets, or so, for example, or, or you know, Google with its, you know, it, it, it innovated and has, and it basically is a trade secret that allows it to dominate the search market. Right. Um, and so you can develop, but you can obtain a monopoly lawfully through innovation or just being clever. Um, a lot of like medical device companies, for example, have have monopolies. The right, nothing unlawful two, about that. Yeah, nothing unlawful. The Section truth. 2 uh, problem arises only when a company either obtains a monopoly in, a, in an anti-competitive way 
or it already has a monopoly and it maintains the monopoly in an anti-competitive way. And so a common kind of claim, although you know, these claims are, are, not that, are usually not very successful, but a common claim, uh, which is often called a tying claim, is that a company has a monopoly over, let's say, one market, and then it uses that monopoly power to try to um, obtain a, market, a monopoly over another market. So, for example, in the Microsoft case, the allegation was Microsoft had its valid monopoly over the operating system market, but it tried to compel um, the ultimate customers to also use uh, uh, Microsoft's browser, uh, basically saying, you know, look, if you want to use my operating system, you have to use my browser, or it, maybe not literally have to, but it's very difficult not to use Microsoft's right, browser. Right, it's the only game in town at that point. Yeah, well, you know, it depends how they do it, and this is a complicated part of the case, but to take an extreme example, if Microsoft just said to uh, the computer manufacturers who loaded uh, Windows onto the computers before selling them to consumers, you know, you have to um, basically put uh, Microsoft's browser, Explorer, you know, on, the, on your computer and no other browser and, you know, make it impossible uh, as a matter of uh, technology for any consumer to download a competing browser. I mean, that would be an extreme example. And mm -hmm. so Microsoft starts off with its legitimate monopoly over uh, operating systems, but then the way it gets its monopoly over browsers is not by making the best browser that beats everybody else because of its superior quality. It's by tying this... Um, you know the uh, the its browser to the uh, to the operating system, and you know that happens actually quite a lot. These kind of allegations come a lot uh, are made a lot. Uh, for example, some pharmaceutical companies, you know, they have one terrific drug that everybody needs, and then the pharmaceutical company is accused of saying to uh, pharmacists or hospitals. If you want to buy our terrific drug, you also have to buy you know this lousy drug we make, which very few people want because there's superior competitors. And that's another type of tying that is allegedly uh, fair, fairly common. So this type of abuse of monopoly power is the focus of Section 2. What if you offer um, volume-based discounts, for example? So you say, listen, I have such a market share that if you buy from me, I will, uh, at volume, I'll charge you a much lower rate, which effectively has... Uh, as a practical matter, will squeeze other competitors out of the market because they won't be able to compete at that price range. I guess before right. we talk about labor, are there are ways that you can lawfully say, hey, I've earned this monopoly, I've built it, and now I'm going to take it out for a spin in a lawful way so that I can completely transparently try to keep competition away. Well, so, I mean, there's a lot of litigation over this, um, mm -hmm. volume discounts and Sometimes these are called exclusionary terms. Or like exclusive. Uh, yeah, it's even better, right? If, uh, yeah. you to, if you want to buy yeah, from me, it has to be exclusive. You, yeah. If you want to, yeah. And so uh, um, that conduct is illegal if it ultimately has an anti-competitive effect. Otherwise, it doesn't. And so you have a really complicated evidentiary question requiring mm -hmm. lots of experts uh, to testify. But, but these kinds of cases are actually very common. Um, and, uh, you know, it's ultimately an empirical question. So if you have, uh, so what a, a, a monopolist might say is, uh, 
you know, so what a monopolist might do is say to the distributors, um, if you if you want to sell our product to customers, you have to you know make the customers agree not to buy the product of a competitor, or you give a discount to the competitors and they forfeit that discount if they buy products from a competitor. And you know you can vary the degree of exclusion uh, based on the size of the discount. You know, so there are lots of ways of doing this. And and then the question ultimately is, what is the major effect of this? company to obtain the scale necessary to challenge the monopolist and offer a competing product because all the customers, you know, the potential customers are tied up with the with the monopolist. If that's the case, it's illegal. Um, mm-hmm. if it, but it might not be the case. It might just be that this product is extremely good, people like it, and the monopolist is using these volume discounts and so forth to, you know, itself you know be able to plan out its 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 uh, production better and save costs and so forth so you have this great you know battle over what the actual empirical effect of the arrangement is so i hear this type of claim and i think to myself in almost every industry um for which i've represented clients or in which i've worked over the course of of my life there are hundreds, thousands of different employers, right? There may be some firms that are better than others, or there may be some retail stores that are better than others. I worked retail as a kid, but it's hard for me to imagine in the labor context, a company being that big and having a monopoly over some labor market that they can fall victim to a a claim like this. But in doing some research, I, I did see that the argument's been made. So how do you take this analysis, which at least I think intellectually would make sense to everybody on the product side, and bring it into the wage context? It would seem to be a hard sell, but you, you, you would understand better than me. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there's a kind of a theory and then the practicality. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the theory and actually the reality is that there are a lot of, you know, what we call monopsonists, labor market monopsonists. So you have basically one employer. Um, think of the one factory town, you know, the tradition of like Pullman in the, near Chicago, or is it in Chicago? Anyway, it's it's nearby. That was a one a one company town, a co- or just a company town. Um, but actually, if you if you go around like travel around the United States, you'll find um, areas, uh, geographic labor markets, where there's basically just one employer or one employer of a, of a certain occupation. So you, you might be in West Virginia, and there might be a single mine in what's called the commuting zone, in the area where people will naturally work for an employer. And so if you're a miner, if you're an experienced miner with the relevant expertise, you effectively just have one employer. Now, true, it's true there might also be a Walmart that will hire you uh, as, a, as, a, as a salesperson, but uh, that's a different labor market, and that's not the the Walmart's not going to exert pressure on the mining company to pay you uh, a competitive wage. Um, I mentioned chicken processing plants. I mean, they tend to be in rural areas, not always, but frequently in rural areas, and within uh, the commuting zone, whatever it is, 50 miles, where where people would drive uh, for work. Uh, there may be um, only one such uh, plant that uh, needs the particular skills of of its employees. Um, 
So in rural areas, uh, you know, and maybe small towns, I think there are actually a lot of monopsonists, although they're not really recognized as such. You know, everybody knows that Microsoft or Google or Facebook has monopoly power on the product market side, but people don't sort of instinctively think of any particular company as being a, a labor monopsonist. Um, so, um, but, you know, I think as it becomes clear that there are these labor monopsonists scattered around the country, uh, lawyers, plaintiff's lawyers, are going to look more carefully at what they do and whether um, they're, either they obtain the labor monopsony in some kind of anti-competitive way, which is probably unlikely, but I think more importantly, whether they maintain that monopsony or extend it in some way. Um, the, if what they would do that, that look like? What would the second look like? How would you? So let's say you have a business idea. There's a um, a town which doesn't have a uh, retail store, and you decide, you know what? I'm going to take my resource. I'm going to build a store there because that town doesn't have one. And then you become the only game in town, and you, you know, right or wrong morally, you pay and keep your labor costs as low as they can be to maximize profits. At what point can you be alleged, and I guess anybody can allege anything, but what would be the most credible allegation that somebody like that was holding on to their monopsony in an illegal way? Right. Well, I think starting that, yeah, I think starting the the store would be perfectly fine from an antitrust perspective and from the perspective of of public policy as well. You know, you have a town or a rural area, people are out of work, there are no good jobs. Walmart sets up a, a, a an outlet. That's terrific. So now there are additional jobs. In my hypothetical example, Walmart would have labor market power and could pay people less than it would if there was also a Target and other retail stores competing for workers. Right. But clearly, right. what they did is a good thing. So how would it be a bad thing? You know, what would it look like? Um, well, the question would be if our hypothetical Walmart or retail outlet tried to prevent uh, competition once it obtained its dominant position. Um, One way it could do that would be, for example, tying up its employees with covenants not to compete. So, you know, if the target tries to come into the area uh, to compete with the Walmart and it looks for people to hire, and the only people who are qualified are Walmart employees who have, uh, you know, a two-year non-compete, there's the beginning of an argument there that these non-competes are an anti-competitive way to maintain uh, the labor monopsony. Uh, not necessarily, but th- that would right. be the beginning of the argument. You know, a more obvious case would be is if, if the, our hypothetical Walmart actually just paid um, Target not to show up. They say, you know, go somewhere else. Um, you know, there's another sort of empty area somewhere else where you could set up your, your Target and and pay people, uh, you know, the wage that you can get away with. That would also be uh, pretty obviously... Uh, an anti-competitive act and illegal under Section 2 because our hypothetical Walmart already has a kind of a labor monopsony. Uh, There's something that some people have suggested as a possible possible argument. Uh, you've, You've heard of predatory pricing, and you could imagine a kind of a predatory waging uh, argument. So oh, predatory, yeah, predatory pricing means, you know, let's suppose you open up, um, I don't know, a, a, um, a, 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 I don't know, a, like a, a, a clothing store in a small town, 
you you charge incredibly low prices. Everybody comes to your store. All the other clothing stores go out of business because they don't have customers anymore. And then once they're out of business, you raise your prices super high so that in aggregate your customers are hurt. Okay, so that's a theory. That's a, a valid theory in antitrust law. It's it's controversial among economists, although you know some people think it's possible or even common. You could imagine the same thing happening on the labor market side. So Amazon comes in with its warehouse. It initially offers really high wages. The workers at the other warehouses quit and go to work for Amazon. Those warehouses shut down, and then at that point, Amazon uh, reduces wages below you know, the, the, what they were at, at the beginning. So again, I don't have any evidence that this is happening. I'm not alleging that it has, but that could be a story. And if that were a story, there would be a, a kind of a predatory waging argument, which could at least in theory uh, provide the basis for a Section 2 action. Well, the last bucket of claims is under the Clayton Act, Section 7. And, you know, we dealt with Section 1, which is two entities enter in, into an agreement, uh, Section 2 under the Sherman Act, where it's a single actor. Uh, Clayton Act, Section 7, is in the context of transactions. And some industries are more acquisitive or active than others, but certainly everybody's familiar with the – well, I should, I should say most people are probably familiar with the concept that the federal government has to approve – really big mergers. And those are the ones that you see in the news when DOJ will approve it or not approve it. Um, you can speak a, a, a little bit to that um, process. But I'm really curious about is when antitrust law will creep into some of the other less high profile mergers, right? Because just I, I took this subject last because to me, intellectually, it flowed best. Sometimes two companies will will merge for the sole purpose of eliminating, and I'm not passing judgment either way, just factually, companies will merge to eliminate redundancy, lower labor costs, create efficiencies, and as a consequence, people's wages might go down or people may lose their job. That may not be a good thing for society, you may argue, but that undergirds a ton of mergers. But at the same time, it seems to run directly into some of these antitrust problems that we've been talking about today, right? So speak a little bit to the high-level process that the federal government has to follow when they're reviewing the really big mergers, but then focus more on how the antitrust laws will factor into employment decisions and personnel decisions generally following some smaller mergers. Sure. So um, again, let's, let's start with the car market and just imagine Ford and GM want to merge uh, they'd have to tell the federal government of their plan to merge, and then the government would do a merger review. And you know, at a very high level of generality, the process is actually pretty simple. If you know, as is the case with the car market, there are only a small number of manufacturers, and two of them merge, then we say the level of competition in the market declines substantially, or concentration increases. And uh, again, if there's a small number of of competitors initially and we get a merger, the Justice Department or the FTC uh, will say, look, you can't do this uh, pretty much, period. The companies will be given an opportunity to defend their merger by arguing that uh, it generates efficiencies that are quite significant. 
So, for example, GM and Ford might say, look, we've got all these factories that are you know, only being half used. If we merge, we can shut down a bunch and uh, produce cars more efficiently. And so the cost of production will go way down. And as a result, we can lower prices. So even though we have more market power before and in effect can charge a price higher than the more easily charge a price higher than the competitive price, uh, our cost savings are so high that that will offset the market power. And so the actual ultimate effect for consumers will be lower prices. Okay, And so the government has reviewed mergers like this for decades, and it's all pretty clear part of the landscape. Um, in the case of very small mergers, you, the companies don't have to uh, tell the government. They don't need the government's approval. They can just go ahead and do them. However, if uh, if the mergers are small, and they but they nonetheless have an anti-competitive effect, um, private litigation can be brought under Section 7. So imagine, for example, a small town which has you know three gas stations, and two of the gas stations merge. Suppose they're independently owned gas stations. Uh, the Justice Department is probably not going to hear about this, but drivers in the town will notice it, and and you know they could um, sue to enjoin the merger or to get damages after the merger. And it's really the same argument. If you have three gas stations, they're competing, you know, keeping gas prices relatively low. If you now have two, there's going to be less competition, and so uh, prices will go up. And then the merging gas stations will say, well, it's more efficient to have one gas station in a small town, or you know, two gas stations in a small town than three, and that, those cost savings will be passed on, and you know, that's, that's what the litigation is going to be about. So now let's focus on the labor market. So you know, recently, economists have found that labor markets are highly concentrated, and uh, much more concentrated than economists used to think. And that suggests that a lot of these mergers that have been going on may have uh, reduced competition in labor markets. In fact, they may have been motivated by desire by the merging companies to suppress wages. And uh, the Justice Department and the FTC have never reviewed mergers for their labor market effects. And, and that's probably been a mistake. Now, it's not the statute case- allowed for it. They just didn't do it. Yeah, they right. just didn't do it as a matter of practice. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, they may it just may never have occurred to them. But, you know, if you think, for example, of GM and Ford, and if they have a lot of factories in the Detroit area, they might, you know, merge. And as a result, they're not competing for skilled uh, auto workers, and that could result in the wages of skilled auto workers going down. And so, in principle, the government should should look at the possible labor market effects when firms merge. There won't always be labor market effects. Uh, if the firms, if two you know, manufacturing companies have factories in different parts of the country so that they're not drawing from the same labor market, uh, their merger is not going to increase their labor market power. Uh, so there won't be an anti-competitive effect on labor markets. The fact that they might shut down one of the factories in this setting is actually not a, a, an antitrust concern. Uh, the only concern is if you increase your power over a particular labor market. And, and I think that leads to you know, the question you raised about, well, what happens if a merger results in people getting fired? And the, you know, the, the classic view among economists and antitrust law is 
that's that in itself is is not necessarily um a, a bad thing you know a bad thing from the standpoint of the economy it's obviously bad for the for the workers mm-hmm. but we accept in our economy that you know the market is always changing you know and if people don't want to buy uh whatever scooters anymore and scooter factories go out of business and people lose their jobs that's fine if there's no demand for scooters we don't want to employ people to build scooters that nobody wants you know that that's totally fine and there may be uh public policy reasons for helping the out of work workers with training or other benefits but you don't want to keep industries in existence that aren't actually serving the public that's okay. Antitrust law. My view of antitrust law, you know, isn't isn't opposed to, to that to that view. the The problem is, and I think this is a subtle point that a lot of people don't understand. When two firms merge, let's say GM and Ford again, you have to figure out, you know, what the what the actual reason and effect of the merger is. So, if the main effect of the merger is to uh, produce a more efficient type of production because you don't actually need that many workers to build cars, um, or, you, or there's just less demand for cars, but the scale that's necessary to produce cars remains the same. So we can really only have one company rather where we used, used to have two. You know that's basically okay. It's okay to have a merger in that case, but if the pur- the, the purpose and effect of the merger is to increase the uh, power of the merged entity over labor markets so that they suppress wages where before they couldn't, that's not okay. Well, first, the threshold question, what really distinguishes these Section 7 claims from the Section 1 claims is they're, they're and, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's no nefarious side agreement. This is something that the, is out in the open, two companies merge, and then somebody comes in and says, well, listen, as a consequence of this merger, whether it's the government or a private plaintiff, it has the effect uh, or it can have the effect of of suppressing wages. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know to some extent, a, a Section 7 claim is yeah. also a Section 1 claim because it's just an agreement. But, you know... The, you know, the, the, a merger. So a merger is not as um, much of a concern for antitrust authorities as price fixing, right. because there is a kind of a clear efficiency reason for merging. You know, you shut down a factory that's not necessary to produce, you know, goods and services that people or goods that people want. That's you're saving resources. So, you know, a, a kind of a Section 1 analogy might be something more like a joint venture or, you know, something where the firms are not just um, controlling prices, but are also integrating in some way or doing something that will, you know, make them more productive than they were before. Right. So because in terms me, of nefariousness, yeah, no, right, we, we, you know, it's more ambiguous in a merger case. We don't really know the motivations of the executives. Maybe they're thinking... Yeah, we're going to be more productive and we'll be able to make more money that way. That's good. Or they might be thinking, oh, we're going to have more market power and we can raise prices or suppress wages. That's good. Or maybe they're thinking both, you know, and that would be good. And then it's up to the antitrust authority to untangle these things and figure out whether the anti-competitive effect is greater or less than the uh, the productivity effect. Whereas in the case of price fixing, I mean, I agree, you know, it seems more nefarious because there – 
just if you if the executives just say okay let's fix prices it's very unlikely that they think that's going to increase productivity that they have a a good faith reason for for um doing that and so we tend to throw the book at them and and not only prohibit that but maybe throw them in jail as well let's say if you're one way to look at it is suppressing wages um another way might be let's say in the manufacturing context that we need to keep our uh, labor costs down because you know what? We're competing with suppliers all over the world who are outsourcing manufacturing jobs to a country with no labor laws. And how else can we compete? If you want us to stay alive and employ anybody, um, you need us to create these efficiencies so that we can keep labor costs down and leave to the side whether executives (laughs) are doing it or not, right? But how how do you respond to that that argument? it's it's not a good argument from an antitrust perspective. I mean, obviously, there are concerns about foreign competition. You know, people mm-hmm. are particularly concerned about this today. But, yeah, you know, the, yeah. what the, the hardcore economist would say in response to your question is, you know, you, that is the firm that's making this argument, you should die, right? If if the only way you can compete by with foreign manufacturers is by, you know, reducing production and suppressing wages we should just import all these goods, you know, so mm-hmm. this other country has a comparative advantage, you know, going back to Ricardo, they have cheaper labor, transportation costs are low. So whatever it is you're making here in America should be made by that foreign country. And what you should do is take your capital and labor and figure out something that, uh, that you know, makes sense, you know, maybe some kind of local product or something that takes an, uh, advantage of American universities or expertise or whatever, whatever that is. Um, you can't, you can't like, um, you know, you can't, you know, there, there could be a policy argument, you know, let's, ra- let's you know, uh, let's generate uh, tariffs, let's raise trade barriers because, you know, Americans are being hurt, and maybe a lot of these foreign uh, workers are being exploited in ways that we uh, disapprove of. But, you know, antitrust law is narrower than that. It doesn't permit those sorts of policy arguments, no matter how, you know, reasonable they are, uh, to be a defense for an employer who's engaging in in anti-competitive behavior. It's an important element of antitrust law that you're, you're not allowed to make a, a kind of a policy argument that um, that people might agree with, but has nothing to do with uh, competitive markets. Otherwise, a monopolist could say something like, yeah, I'm charging higher prices, but that means I'm producing less, so I'm producing less pollution, and there's less global warming, and so, you know, don't don't bother me, you know, what I'm right, doing is right. actually good. Uh, or you know maybe I'm or you know maybe I'm taking some of my monopoly profits and I'm giving it to my workers so they're being overpaid you know and 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 that's good for them as as well that's just not accepted you know the the way we think of it in the policy world is you know if pollution's a problem we should regulate the companies we should we should you know tax uh, their output and then use that money to uh, lower taxes for other people or pay for, you know, government services. We shouldn't we shouldn't let the the uh, monopolist itself just kind of tax everybody in the form of a higher price and then just take those, you know, take that take that money for itself. Um that's a really inefficient way of of uh, reducing uh global warming or helping workers. The one question I think that applies in almost all of the contexts we've been talking about 
is this definition of a labor market or if somebody is a victim of, of anti-competitive market power, where can they go? What do they do? And so you know, we've, we, we debated a, a couple of examples where, let's say, for example, in a hospital on a continuum, there may be somebody who just sweeps the floors at the end of the night, who in theory can sweep any floors in any small town, versus a brain surgeon who, who may be very, very discreet. And there's a continuum. And I'm, I'm fascinated by how courts will decide, okay, well, the, the person who sleeps the floor, their labor market is not concentrated because they can do that anyway. Versus maybe let's say there's an executive assistant at that hospital and that executive assistant is used to working at a hospital or let's say at my legal administrative assistant here at my law firm. If we exert too much power and, and we don't, there are too many law firms in, in New York right. and all over the country, but sure. if we were to have that market power over her, can't she just go, in theory, and work at one of the litany of accounting firms in New York City or one of the consulting firms or some other white-collar, let's say, uh, assistant position? How do you think, given the way that the economy is changing, and we, we didn't really have time to get into the gig economy, but where people kind of tend to move around a lot more, how are courts going to go about defining these labor markets, which seem to me to be inherently broad, but they're argued to be narrow in the antitrust context. Like, do you think right. that's going to change so, over time? Or that, that to me is the yeah, hardest part. It's really hard. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, here's a kind of a, a concrete way of thinking about it. Let's suppose, you know, two hospitals merge or are planning to merge or, I don't know, exchange wage information or something. And so various employees of those um, hospitals you know, are thinking about bringing an antitrust case or might be right. included in a class. And so we can distinguish different people. There's the brain surgeon, there's uh, administrative people, there are custodial people, there are cafeteria workers. You know, those are all, all those people work for the hospital. And, right. and we distinguish labor markets both by the occupation and the, the distance that people are willing to travel to work. So we have, let's say, the cafeteria workers, and they can work outside the hospital. They could work in an office building somewhere. And we have the brain surgeon. And the brain surgeon, you know, if there are only two hospitals in this town who might compete for uh, his services, now there's only one. On the other hand, maybe the brain surgeon could easily move to another town because he's wealthy and, you know, he's not as rooted to the town, let's say, as the cafeteria worker is. So these are the sorts of complicated questions that have to be asked. Now, I think w w the way that it would work is that when the plaintiff um, files the complaint, the complaint would be kind of vague. It might just say that the town is the labor market. Um, and the court will probably accept that for motion to dismiss purposes. You know, if it's something that's reasonably plausible, the town, so the, the labor market is the town, you know, brain surgeons in this town or cafeteria workers in this town. You know, the reality is that the labor market might be narrower or broader, but for purposes of getting beyond the motion to dismiss, my sense from reading lots of these cases is that the courts are going to be, you know, relatively flexible. And they say, look, you know, the, the, the actual definition of the market is a factual question. And so the plaintiff is going to be given an opportunity to prove a particular definition of the market. And at that point, the plaintiff does is hire an economist and give the economist access to data. And really, 
conceptually, it's it's not that complicated. The question is, if the um, cafeteria workers' wage goes down, uh, you know, a more than trivial amount, let's say 5%, um, would they uh, go work for a non-hospital? Or is there something about working as a cafeteria worker in a hospital that, you know, gives you an advantage so that a hospital will pay you a lot more than some other, you know, institution? My guess is that the cafeteria worker can get just as good a job um, at another organization that's not a hospital. Uh, my guess also, though, is that the cafeteria worker is not going to be willing to commute enormous uh, distances. Um, and so that can actually be determined with data. Like if you have, you could use surveys maybe, but you may actually have data about, which shows the effect of wage changes in wages on, on, on employment in, in a particular labor market. And so the econ economists may actually be able to figure out the answer to this question, whether uh, the cafeteria workers are, are going to be, you know, able to move to another organization or not in this particular town. Um, and that's how the market will be defined. In, in the case of the administrative assistant, again, it's, there it's more likely that the administrative assistant has experience with hospitals and may not have an opportunity in this town outside um, a hospital to be paid as well because uh, this person's skills are, you know, connected in some way to hospital administration. But maybe this person would be willing to commute farther than a cafeteria worker is and that there are a bunch of hospitals or other medical institutions that are just outside the town. And again, that's a matter of, you know, looking, how looking at how actual people behave by looking at data. And economists, you know, they can use data from other markets. Like they could say, uh, okay, this is a small town of uh, Akron. Well, we also have data about what happened in Toledo when two hospitals merged, and we can show what effect that happened on the labor, what effect that had on the labor market, and we can control for this and that, and we can look at a bunch of different places, and you know, that's that's how it's done. Um, it's it, it's expensive uh, and complicated. Expensive. It may be expensive to obtain the data. It's certainly expensive to pay the experts to do a high-quality analysis of the data. But ultimately, it's a kind of a, a, a factual uh, question uh, that, that can be answered. Right. It's not a matter of preference, like whether the cafeteria worker would prefer to work in hospitals. Does the data show that they're... Uh, the data will have to show one way or another what that person's labor market is. And if it happens to be only hospitals, and that would probably probably be a stretch, but if that was what the data showed or the more persuasive expert established, um, then that is how the labor market would be defined. Yeah, although, you know, interestingly, is right? it, it is a little bit about preference and, and oh, it's, okay. you know, sort of clear on the consumer side. Like, if people just prefer, you know, cars to motorcycles for no particular reason, like they just like cars, you know, that's a preference. Okay. And you know, the, my preference for, let's say, uh, a four-door sedan over a two-door sedan is kind of minimal, but my preference over of a, you know, of a car over a motorcycle is pretty enormous, and that's going to be reflected in my consumer behavior. I'm not going to even consider motorcycles, so if the price of a four-door sedan goes up, I might look at a two-door sedan, but I'm not going to look at motorcycles. That's how we know two-door and four-door sedans are in the same market and motorcycles are not. 
And, you know, this could be true for cafeteria workers, but it could also not be true. I mean, like they might not, they might not care. And, uh, you know, workers are, you know, this is, a, this is another issue for this litigation. You know, even some, as, big a, as big a purchase as a car, you know, people don't spend a whole lot of time in their cars, at least not compared to the amount of time they, they spend at work. And so the preferences and abilities and all this stuff is a lot more complicated in labor markets, which is probably going to be a problem for plaintiffs in, in many cases. But, you know, ultimately, you just do a, you know, a regression. You know, you just do statistical analysis and you ask yourself, if wages go down, is this person going to leave, you know, go to go into, you know, go find another employer or not? And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, that that's, that's the inquiry that uh, the experts uh, will have to conduct. Well, what advice would you leave employers with on how to begin uh, flagging and navigating some of these antitrust concepts in the labor side, on the labor side? Now that we've given them all this to think about. Right. What are some? <laughs> what are some yeah. <laughs> I think in, in employment lawyers should be involved in um, decisions about mergers. Uh, so I think uh, I think you know let's say corporate counsel when um, they're told that a company is is thinking about merging with another company uh, they should advise the um, you know the CEO uh, to retain lawyers who can tell them about labor markets as well as about product markets. Um, mm-hmm. I think also lawyers who review employment contracts, I, I imagine, you you know more about this than me, but I imagine from time to time, a firm is, decides, you know, we're going we're gonna to review and maybe revise the standard terms in our employment contracts for our workers. You know, you, you, I guess I would say two things here. First of all, the employment lawyers should, should, know whether this particular employer has an effective or near labor monopsony over any particular labor market. Market, uh, right. because Because if it does, uh, it has to be careful about what sorts of terms it puts in these uh, uh, contracts. Now, I think, you know, for, for little companies, this is not an issue. But for big companies, you know, you could imagine, for example, I don't know, a manufacturing company that has plants in lots of different areas, you know, they have to think about those different areas and who's employed in the plant. So maybe the plant has some IT people and some people who are on the manufacturing line and some repair people and plumbers and electricians, you know, I don't know. And, uh, And in some places, those markets might be very thin, you know, very concentrated. And in other places, they may be very competitive. If the market is is concentrated, then some terms in an employment contract that would otherwise be unobjectionable might might get scrutiny ultimately in an antitrust case. Um, any kind of term that restricts the mobility of workers, including non-competes and uh, no poaching agreements, and maybe terms that restrict. Um, you know their ability to share information about their jobs or their wages. Those are sorts of things that that the employment lawyer should should think about. Yeah, and let me add to that. In response to your question, I should have 
mentioned that the Justice Department issued uh, guidance to human resources, um, you know, hum the human resources uh, offices of, of companies a few years ago, um, warning them about no poaching agreements and the sharing of wage information. And the Justice Department has said that it's engaged in criminal investigations. And, and this sort of behavior um, is illegal even for small companies, companies mm -hmm. in competitive markets. Right. And it may not seem illegal to people. You know, a human resources officer might think it's a perfectly okay thing to call up a competitor and ask them about wage information. And, and it's not. It's potentially illegal or even criminal. And a CEO might think it's a natural thing uh, or, you know, a CEO or some uh, uh, executive in a company who has responsibility for hiring might think it's a natural thing to call up his pal who works for a competitor and say, look, you know, please don't hire my people and I won't hire your people and that'll just be easier for all of us. And that's criminal behavior now. That's clearly criminal behavior. So I, I think a big role for employment lawyers is to educate executives about uh, the legal risks they would take. Um, when you know behavior that it just it just does doesn't occur to them is is really um, wrong actually is taken quite seriously by the government and can be uh, you know can can be challenged in private litigation as well. Well, I very much appreciate you taking the time to to chat with me about it. I I certainly learned a lot preparing for the podcast. I learned more even chatting together. And in the meantime, we'll keep an eye out for all your your writing. And uh, as these issues evolve, we'll we'll have you back hopefully. Okay, yeah, that'll be fun. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks so much, Eric. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.